What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. When police began investigating the disappearance of Heather West in February 1994, it led them right to her parents' front door. Five days and nights into their excavation, and forensic teams have now unearthed three sets of human remains, all buried in separate places, five feet under the garden patio of this Gloucester home. Fred and Rosemary West are one of the most infamous couples in British history. They sexually abused, tortured, and murdered young women, including their own daughter. Children are their things to play with. They are disposable. They're things there to be used and abused. For 20 years, Fred and Rose West satisfied their appetite for sex and murder inside their home on 25 Cromwell Street, Gloucester, which became known as the House of Horrors. I've never for one moment doubted that Frederick West was a truly evil man, but he found in Rose the perfect sorcerer's apprentice. This is What Makes a Killer, a 12-part series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Fred and Rosemary West. In 1969, 28-year-old Fred West was married to his wife, Rena. Fred had a young family at home. But he had his eye on a 15-year-old girl named Rosemary Letts. Rose and her family had recently moved to the Gloucestershire area. Jane Carter Woodrow is the author of Rose West, The Making of a Monster. They met at the bus station in Cheltenham. She said that he could charm the birds off the trees, even though his appearance was shabby. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says that the pair, unknowingly, shared a deeply traumatic childhood. Well, Fred was the the eldest boy in the family, and he was very much the the target for quite a lot of abuse at at the hands of of his mother. So his mother sexually abused him, essentially. Rose's childhood was similar to Fred's in many ways, in that it was completely dysfunctional and and antisocial and and abnormal. So she was abused by her father, who started raping her from from a very young age. So, So what she took to be normal, what she took to be acceptable in terms of behavior within a family really was anything but. As soon as the couple met, there was an instant attraction. 
Well, these were two incredibly damaged people. They'd both come from, from abnormal families. And I think when they met, what they saw in each other was something familiar. So they both would have realised that the, the childhoods that they had were far from normal. But with one another, they felt that familiarity. That traumatic familiarity united the pair, says Jeffrey Wansel, author of An Evil Love, The Life of Frederick West. Maybe it was something that Rose gave off implicitly, but something in Fred connected with what had happened to Rose and the way she was and the way she'd been treated by her father. And it was like a union of two souls. I think it was the perfect storm. You know, the chances of these two people meeting was, you know, it must have been a, a million to one, but unfortunately they did. In 1970, just a year after meeting, Fred and Rose were living together in Gloucester with Fred's stepdaughter, Charmaine. But his wife, Rena, was nowhere to be seen. And Rose was pregnant with the couple's first daughter, Heather. I think in the early days, perhaps the more dominant partner was, was Fred. He was older, he was more experienced, he'd, he'd seen more than, than Rose had. You know, she'd come from this incredibly contained family. But I think as their relationship developed, um, she started to find her feet and find her confidence. For Rose and Fred, it was all about sex from the very, very beginning. Fred was the originator, but he found the perfect partner someone who shared his lust and someone who understood him and wanted to perform for him. Fred's and Rose's traumatic childhoods had a lasting effect on the couple. They had a twisted approach to family life together. There were a lot of children that came into their lives. It's always a very complicated question to answer how many children Fred and Rose actually had. Because if you count Fred's daughter Charmaine, along with Fred and Rose's eight, it's nine. But then you've got to add Rose's three children, all of whom were fathered not by Fred. All I would say is that all of them were deeply hurt, almost ruined by the parents. I record in a few different studios, and I swear the polar vortex comes out of the air vent in one of them, and there are two or three others that are probably appropriate for hot yoga. It always seems to be one extreme or the other, and I can very rarely get comfortable. This is where our friends at Emberwave come in. Emberwave is the first bracelet that helps you feel colder or warmer right at the press of a button. Science shows that warming or cooling sensitive areas of your body, like your wrist, improves your overall comfort. Just like running your wrist under cold water provides a refreshing chill, and cupping your hands around a hot, delicious drink that definitely doesn't have alcohol in it gives you a comforting feeling of warmth. Emberwave cools or warms your wrist with precisely engineered thermal waves. This generates the perfect sensation that works naturally with your body and mind to help you feel five degrees more comfortable in minutes. I wish there was a bracelet to work with my mind to make me feel comfortable in awkward situations. Get on that, Ember Wave. 
Listeners can get $50 off for the holidays if they go to emberwave.com slash what. That's E-M-B-R-W-A-V-E dot com slash what. Hey, maybe you got a mom or a grandma or an aunt or an uncle who's like impossible to shop for. Emberwave, you are welcome. It's 1992, and Gloucestershire police are searching for Heather West, the firstborn daughter. In 1987, aged just 16, Fred's and Rose's eldest child vanished from the family home on 25 Cromwell Street. Fred claimed Heather had run away, but she was never reported as missing. But after receiving allegations of child abuse, detectives began to look into Heather's whereabouts. Chief Constable Tony Butler was in charge of Gloucestershire Police. One of the children uh, told a friend at school about what was, what was happening to her. That friend talked to a patrolling police officer, in fact, about what her friend had told her, and it was a result of what the police... The police officer then took that back, and it initiated a child protection process, which led to the evidence being gathered. The police couldn't ignore the disturbing abuse allegations. Five of the West's children were placed into protective care, and the police began their investigation. They had also heard rumors of a sick joke made by Fred West about Heather. You better watch out, because if you don't shut up and stop causing your dad or your mum any trouble, you'll end up like Heather two down and three across in the patio. Fred had laid a patio behind Coronel Street, was in squares, which was rather like a crossword. The family joke was that he'd buried Heather at two down and three across. This uh, issue, this Heather's under the patio, uh, continued to, to be raised. And so we started to take this point seriously. We knew Heather had disappeared, had left the home, uh, so we tried to trace her. And um, despite massive amount of inquiry to try and find it. She just literally disappeared off the face of the earth. In February 1994, the police decided to find out if the family joke had originated in truth. When they arrived with the warrant, Fred and Rose were at the house and they went into the back garden and the officers started uh, digging the garden. Sensing the end was near, Fred asked to be interviewed by police. Fred asked the, um, the officer if they could go down to the police station, and so they, they left. Fred said that he, uh, that he admitted that, that Heather's remains were in the garden, but the police were looking in the wrong place. And later that day, he returned with the officers and he indicated where, um, where he thought Heather was buried. The following day, officers digging in that area recovered a femur, um, and uh, that was taken for examination by the forensic pathologist who confirmed it was human remains. And uh, that turned out to be, uh, to be one of Heather's uh, remains. As police continued digging under the patio, they found more than just Heather's dismembered body. When they found remains, they found not just two legs or two thigh bones, but three. The interrogating detective said to West, well, unless Heather had three legs, there's another body. 
Oh, yes, Fred says, without drawing breath or hesitating. That must be the other girl. That would be Shirley. The police were about to unearth all the secrets that Fred and Rose West had been hiding at 25 Cromwell Street for over two decades. Fred confessed to officers that the other body was of his former lover, Shirley Robinson. Then 18-year-old Shirley hadn't been seen since 1978. When she disappeared, she was far along in her pregnancy with Fred's child. West also admitted that they would find a third body in the garden, who he claimed was a friend of Shirley's. Throughout the questioning, Fred insisted on one thing, that his wife Rose knew nothing about any of the bodies. I think when Fred was protesting Rose's innocence and, and taking the blame completely upon himself, I think, yes, at that point, the power had changed in, in their relationship from him being the dominant one in the early years to her really pulling the strings in those later years. And I think he, he really didn't trust her at this point in time. He was really quite afraid of, of what she might do. So, so I think that that was definitely something that had flipped in this relationship. Leo Goatley who later represented Rose West in court, describes his impression of Fred. Well, I found him quite a creepy bloke. He would always be trying to endear himself to people in a rather smarmy way, a little kind of giggle, making light of things. Um, but he was very unconvincing doing that. And he would very quick, quickly realise if you weren't impressed by him and then he would withdraw, and I, I would sense there was a, a, this other side to him that, that would scowl and be probably quite nasty. Whatever his sort of murky machinations within his mind were, once he realised, he was probably better able to actually charm women than blokes. It's possible that, um, you know, with a, a little smile and some sort of soft talk, he was able to persuade some young women that he was safe to be around. To make things more complicated, Fred's story kept changing. He alternated between admitting and then denying the killings, claiming they were accidental. It seemed Fred realized he should try to get charged with manslaughter and not murder. But it would be a hard job for pathologists to prove otherwise. The third body had been buried under the patio for years. Finding the cause of death and identifying the third victim would be a difficult feat. Using dental records, experts identified the third victim as Allison Chambers, who was just 16 when she went missing in 1979, meaning she was too young to have been a friend of Shirley Robinson, as Fred suggested. Marks found on her body proved beyond doubt she'd been tortured. This proved that West hadn't accidentally killed these young women. He had tortured, sexually assaulted, and intentionally murdered them. But how was Fred doing this without Rose knowing? The police weren't convinced. The most important thing, of course, was that these bodies were recovered in the house that she shared with Fred and it would appear inconceivable 
that she wouldn't have had knowledge of this. The house itself was very, very small. It would have been inconceivable that you could have kept a young woman or women in that house without every occupant knowing that something was going on. No matter how much tape you would have put over their mouths, no matter how much they'd been concealed in the cellar, you would know. It would have been impossible not to know. The police believed it possible that West had slain even more victims. They began to look into missing persons files to try and find any potential matches. But there were approximately 10,000 missing women in the country on record at the time. It was a seemingly endless search. Throughout that time, we were trying to trace, uh, trace people from, from children's homes to make sure they were safe. We were dealing with forensic materials, I mean, massive amounts of forensic material, searching. It was on a scale that was really unprecedented. After scouring missing persons reports, investigators found two missing people who stood out, Lucy Partington and Linda Goff. Lucy was a 21-year-old student last seen at a bus stop in Gloucester in 1973. 19-year-old Linda went missing in the same year. Her last known address was 25 Cromwell Street. Police pieced together that Fred did not, in fact, act alone. He and Rose were a villainous team. Together, they devised a method for abducting young women. Fred and Rose adopted a sort of modus operandi. They would identify young women on the run, if you like, run away from home, run away from a children's home, run away from their parents. They were vulnerable. They would offer them a home. And time after time, Fred would pick up with Rose, often at bus stops, young women who looked a little lost. So they would always choose people who would be in that position of vulnerability. And the fact that they were a couple, I think was quite helpful to them in luring victims in because the women that they, they targeted would be more likely to, to trust a couple. So when they would pick somebody up who was hitchhiking, that played to that idea of, well, there's a woman there, so I'm gonna be safe. But they were not safe with Rose. She knew how to manipulate their victims. Rose already knew the language of grooming. She was quite used to it. And when you hear the victims talk about how she spoke to them in this sort of quite soft, pleasing voice, you knew that, again, that was something she'd learnt. Linda Goff was never officially reported as missing, but her family searched for her at the time of her disappearance. Uh, Linda Goff's uh, mother, she'd been round to the house, uh, knocked on the door and it had been answered by uh, Rose West. Uh, and she asked where Linda was and she was told that she'd gone away, I think, to, to Western Supermare. She was struck by the fact that there was Rose standing there with, with her uh, Linda slippers, uh, wearing Linda slippers. And she also noticed on the clothesline there were articles of, of, of Linda's clothing. Linda's mother believed Rose when she said that her daughter had moved on from Cromwell Street. But as the press coverage began to reflect the sheer horror as the story unfolded, other women who had encountered the Wests came forward. 
the police got a break when Caroline Roberts contacted them to offer her help in the investigation. She'd seen the investigation on the news and told police she'd been sexually assaulted by both Fred and Rose in 1972. They had once picked up Caroline while she was hitchhiking, and she stayed in contact with them for a while. She even worked for them as a nanny for a brief time. It was one horrifying incident that caused her to file a complaint against them. They invited her back to the house, and when she got to the house, and she was then bound and subject to, to some rather aggressive uh, sexual activity, she managed to escape subsequently and reported it to her mum, who then told the police. Both Fred and Rose were arrested for uh, rape and other and serious sexual offences. But at the time, she was too scared to face the Wests at a trial and ashamed of what had happened. As a result, the Wests were charged with indecent exposure instead of rape and were fined 100 pounds. With the information Caroline gave to the police, they could link Rose to the crimes and bodies at Cromwell Street. So we had that evidence that there was an aggressive sexual nature to her personality. The details of sexual activity that had taken place had a number of similarities, particularly talking about bindings and gags and so on, that were uh, very similar if not identical, to the material that was recovered uh, in association with the victims when they were discovered. On March the 4th, 1994, police moved their search inside the house. They had a feeling that down in the dark cellar, they may uncover even more bodies. When the news reached Fred West at Gloucester Police Station, he made a stunning admission in a handwritten note given to detectives. It read, I, Frederick West, authorize my solicitor, Howard Ogden, to advise Superintendent Bennett that I wish to admit to a further approximately nine killings, expressly Charmaine, Rena, Linda Goff, and others to be identified. Signed, F. West. Can you imagine the scene? It almost defies belief. They weren't sitting across the table from a monster, a man, huge man with bare hands and able to kill a little insignificant chap who nevertheless confesses to nine murders. It's at that point the police realize, I think probably for the first time, that they are dealing with someone truly evil. Fred was again taken back to the house and, and he indicated uh, where some of the bodies had, had been buried, uh, particularly the area of the cellar. And so what happened then was that we undertook a methodical search of the whole property. Fred maintained a position that Rose was not involved in these cases. You know, that's the inference that he was trying to keep her out of it. Fred took the rap for it. They had an agreement that she would stand by him and visit him and... He'd hoped to be out in so many years. But the minute Rose heard that he'd actually admitted to the murders, then she dropped him. That was, he was gone. And she never spoke to him again. She absolutely refused to have any contact with him. On March 5th, 1994, 
the media swarmed in on the home of Fred and Rose West in Gloucester. Police had exhumed three bodies from their back garden. Their daughter, Heather, Fred's pregnant lover, Shirley Robinson, and missing teenager, Allison Chambers. But now, detectives moved inside the property and began excavating the cellar. It was a difficult place to do excavations, and uh, we had to be very careful about recovering the bodies. And on the first day, we did find two sets of human remains. One turned out uh, to be Teresa Siegenhaler, and the second uh, remains were Shirley Hubbard. As he did with all his killings, he dismembered the bodies before he buried them. So he didn't bury them in a skeleton. He buried them in a tube, if you like, uh, in which the body was compressed, the torso, head separated, arms and legs separated and shoved into a smaller hole. It made the search for those bodies a very complicated affair. Pathologists discovered that the bodies they recovered from the cellar were missing fingers and toes. They had been cut off. Why? It could have been a result of torture, but missing fingerprints also meant it was harder to identify the bodies. And that was one of the big, uh, one of our difficulties in, in, when we were doing the investigation, trying to identify the human remains, and in particular, uh, Teresa's remains, because uh, there was no evidence she'd been anywhere near Gloucestershire. But we were able to, in liaison with the Metropolitan Police and the missing persons, to, uh, to come down to a sort of a short list of people that it could be. And then uh, through using uh, forensic techniques, we were able to be satisfied that we had identified her, her remains. As the cellar excavation continued, officers escorted Fred to a field near his former home in Muchmarkle in Herefordshire. He told them if they dug there, they'd find the body of his first wife, Rena. Rena had not been seen since 1971, a year after Fred and Rose had moved in together. Rena and Fred had been married for nine years and were still married when she went missing, but her absence was never reported. So he was taken out to the fields and he pointed out um, in one field, fairly close to a hedge line, uh, where he uh, said that he'd, he'd, he'd buried uh, Rena Costello. But Fred wasn't done. Although he didn't admit to killing her, he told police he had a feeling that Rena's friend, Anne McFall, might be buried in a neighboring field. She is believed to be Fred's first victim, killed in 1967 when she was six months pregnant. The problem with Anne McFall's body was that the whole land had been re-landscaped, and so there was this topsoil that had been put on there. Now, when you're looking for uh, human remains, you can't just bring a big digger in and, and shovel it all out. You are literally doing it by spadefuls and sieving every spadeful. And we actually excavated a hole the size of an Olympic-sized swimming pool. We were almost giving up hope that we were going to find the body, and we set a deadline for ourselves that if we didn't find them by date X, then we would stop. Uh, but fortunately, a couple of days before that deadline came in, we found some bones and then subsequently recovered, recovered the body. Back in the cellar at Cromwell Street, 
even more bodies were being exhumed. Juanita Mott, a former lodger at the house, missing since 1975, and Carol Cooper, last seen walking home from the cinema in 1973. Plus, the two individuals the police had been looking out for, Lucy Partington and, buried underneath the family bathroom, Linda Goff. It's almost incomprehensible that two people could uh, abduct young women or uh, lure them to the house and subsequently, uh, you know, sexually abuse them and, and then kill them. I mean, it is on a scale that's almost incomprehensible. By March 8th, less than two weeks after beginning their search at Cromwell Street, police had found 10 victims. Most of them had been buried two decades ago. And the thought of having some young woman hung up in the cellar, literally, by her hands, into a hook for Fred and Rose to abuse when they wanted to, over a period of days, almost defies belief. It is that horrifying. Aside from the sexual element to the murders, they were becoming, I'd say, maybe closer in a way, but I don't know whether closer is the best word to use to describe that. I think they were becoming more cut off from the rest of the world. This was something that only the two of them understood. It was something that we refer to as a folie de, a madness shared by two. So I think it was kind of cementing their, their relationship. Police had now arrested and charged Rose West with murder. Leo Goatley, who represented Rose, remembers her reaction when she was told that Heather's remains had been found under the patio. She gasped loudly and was very distraught. How do you interpret that? Was that a mother's shock and distress, or was it a murderer's distress at being found out? At that time, I, I believe that she was shocked and distressed and that uh, she didn't know that the extent of Fred's activities. And, of course, at that stage... It wasn't about serial killing, it was about Heather. As more victims were discovered, Rose remained firm on her claim she was innocent. The police's evidence was circumstantial. Defense lawyers felt there wasn't enough to connect her to the murders. Fred had said in his interviews he fully admitted them and said Rose had nothing to do with them. So the first point is to say, well, what is the strength of the case against Rose. She's denying it. Where's the proof that she was involved? While police continued their search at Cromwell Street, they also turned their attention to a second address, 25 Midland Road, Fred's and Rose's first home together in Gloucester. Investigators believed that somewhere in the house or garden, they might find the body of Charmaine West, Fred's stepdaughter from his marriage to Rena. At the time of Charmaine's death, she was living at 25 Midland Road, uh, a house that subsequently uh, Fred and Rose had, had left. Uh, but we went to the house and, uh, again, excavating under the floor of the kitchen, uh, we found uh, Charmaine's uh, body. Charmaine hadn't been seen since 1971. She was eight years old at the time. Like her mother, she also hadn't been reported as missing. In the same year, 
Fred was in jail for nine months for motoring offenses and stealing fence panels from his then-employer. The police were convinced they'd finally got a breakthrough. They were confident Charmaine must have been murdered by Rose while Fred was serving time. Rose was jealous of Charmaine. Charmaine was a very bright little girl, and I think Rose could see that she was getting the upper hand of her, and she didn't like it. Um, the younger sister knew to keep quiet. It was best not to antagonise Rose, and Charmaine was quite a feisty little girl. But instead of attributing the murder to Rose, Fred was blamed. So there were slight differences in the modus operandi, you know, um, certainly with the others, you can imagine Fred going about his work with a sort of builder's precision and uh, routine, you know, severing the limbs and the head, digging a hole in the ground and placing them in it. Charmaine was different. Nevertheless, Fred was charged with Charmaine, even though there were, from the outset, issues about whether Fred was present or whether he was in prison. So there was always that slightly nebulous issue about how old precisely Charmaine was and the dates when she died. By December 1994, 10 months after police had begun to search 25 Cromwell Street, the bodies of 12 young women had been unearthed across Gloucester. Fred West was thought to be responsible for all of the murders. But police were desperately trying to find some evidence to prove that Rose was just as culpable. Both had been arrested, charged, and were awaiting trial. But Fred's secrets wouldn't see the light of day. Fred was in custody at Winston Green Prison in Birmingham, and on the 1st of January 1995, he was found dead in his cell. He died from hanging, and it was subsequently determined that he committed suicide. He planned his suicide as carefully as he concealed his bodies. He groomed the prison officers into thinking that he was an absolutely safe, harmless little man who could do no wrong and was very happy to collaborate with anything they wanted. Indeed, he, he volunteered. He said, I'll mend shirts. Don't worry, and I, give me something to do. Be a pastime for me while I'm waiting for my trial. Painstakingly, over a period of weeks, he stitched together a rope, partly from bits of the blanket on his bed partly from pieces of shirt, very carefully, because he had decided that he was not going to uh, trial and that he was not ever going to confess the, f the true extent of what his crimes amounted to. There was a total loss of control by Fred over Rose. I've no doubt about that. She made it abundantly clear she wanted absolutely nothing else to do with him and she blanked him in the dock. Independent of his relationship with Rose, he lacked empathy with people. You know, people were objects to be used and abused. The fact of the matter was, he knew the game was up. He'd made the admissions, the remains had been found, the terrible story of those victims unfolded. 
For those who knew the West family, this is just another macabre twist in a story that first came to light 10 months ago. In the words of one neighbor, if Frederick West really did kill himself, then it seems almost appropriate that a man accused of taking so many people's lives should end up taking his own. But Fred's suicide was a huge problem for the police. It put the entire case in jeopardy. With the death of Fred, we were concerned that the press might feel, well, the case against Fred is now finished, and therefore we can disclose information because the case is, 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 is closed. That would have been a disaster for us because it would have then compromised the trial of Rose West. While Fred had confessed to 11 of the killings, Rose had always claimed her innocence. Without any solid evidence, there was a real chance that Rose West was going to get away with murder. At the time, Leo Goatley was representing Rose. The case, he said, was in the hands of the Crown, or the state, to decide whether to continue the trial after Fred's suicide. I think it's the Crown that need to review their case and decide where they want to take it from here. Um, I would hope that the, uh, they will drop the case. I thought it was possible the case might have been dropped. There were a lot of eminent observers suggesting that would be the case. The DPP had a different view, though. And in fact, the case got worse against Rose. They added on uh, the murder of Charmaine, which prior had been a sole charge in relation to Fred. I thought that was very curious. Rose thought the case was going to go away as well, uh, but it didn't. Prosecutors needed proof that Rose alone was responsible for the death of her stepdaughter, Charmaine. They turned to forensic odontologist Professor David Whitaker. The police brilliantly discovered, I don't know how, that a certain newspaper, national newspaper, had acquired a set of negatives, and they were large professional negatives, and they showed incredible detail in some of the baby teeth, the deciduous teeth of Charmaine, which I was then able to match exactly using our facial superimposition technology and showed a, that they matched exactly in terms of tilt and position and grooving, a little rough edges were a perfect match. But the position of the teeth had moved. So if we could calculate that movement and assess it, of being able to determine within reasonable accuracy the time elapsed between the photograph being taken which the police had a date for, it was written on the negatives, and the time of death. And if that fitted into the slot where Fred West was in jail, then clearly Mrs West had a lot of questions to answer. On October 3rd, 1995, press from around the world flocked to Winchester Crown Court to report on one of the most shocking trials of modern times. Rose's trial attracted worldwide attention, as you would expect. It's very rare for a woman to go on trial, let alone for ten murders. I attended it from the first day to the last. It was an extraordinary event. 
As the trial began, Rose West pleaded not guilty to all ten counts of murder, the nine girls found buried at Cromwell Street and Charmaine. But the evidence against her was undeniable. So in court, in front of Rosemary West, I had all the technology available to reproduce the imaging of Charmaine. Dreadful thing to have to do in court, but the judge and the prosecution insisted. So Mrs West actually saw this imaging developing in front of her. And I think it was about the only time she looked a little bit upset. She marched into the witness box like a very angry traffic warden. Plain shoes, weighty woman, angry demeanour. This is all an outrage. It was all Fred. I had nothing to do with it. I knew nothing. It was completely inconceivable. I could have done this. I couldn't have killed my own daughter. A tissue of lies. The evidence provided by Whitaker convinced the jury that Rosemary West conspired with Fred in all ten murders. He was able to say, and the jury accepted this, that he, that he could pinpoint within a few days of when the, when the child had been killed. And we had evidence that Fred was in jail uh, during that time. So Fred could not have killed Charmaine at that time because he physically wasn't around, he was in jail. I didn't think the trial had gone well for Rose. And the jury took quite a long time. It wasn't a five minute decision, it was many hours. They thought about everything very carefully. They came back and it was pretty well unanimous on everything. I mean, she was totally defeated. When the first guilty verdicts came back, Rose did not flicker. Not a sign of emotion. She just simply stood there. There was no histrionics, no shouting, no screaming. There was no, no sign of any emotion at all, really. And I was left with the overwhelming feeling that one had been in the presence of someone who had lost contact with humanity. The trial judge, Mr. Justice Mantell, recommended that Rose West should never be released. She was sent to Holloway Prison. Leo Goatley says Rose never confessed to him. Whether she's made any kind of confession to anybody else, I don't know, but she certainly hasn't to me. I would say that tacitly she, at various stages, gave the impression to me, with hindsight, that she knew that, you know, under the floor in Cromwell Street there were a lot of secrets. That's slightly different to saying that she murdered people. But then the nature of the case, it was circumstantial. 300 miles from Gloucester, Rosemary West en route to the prison that will be home for a lifetime. Today, Rose West is at Low Newton Prison in Durham, serving her life sentence. In 1996, two years after the disturbing discovery at 25 Cromwell Street, the House of Horrors was demolished. This certainly was a unique case in my experience, and I was involved in, as a detective, investigating murders right back in the 1960s, and this is on a scale that's completely different. 
Many of us reflect on serial killer couples and say, well, if they had never met one another, would they have gone on to kill? We know that Fred had already committed one murder before he met Rose, so, so I think he would have killed again. When we look at Rose, I think she would have certainly gone on to harm other people, whether that was emotionally, financially, a non-physical kind of harm. But I think having Fred in her life opened up the door to, to a different kind of harm, a different kind of abuse. I've never for one moment doubted that Frederick West was a truly evil man. I think he was born and bred. I think he only ever thought of himself. He was a psychopath and a sociopath. Had no concern for society, no concern for anybody but himself. But he found in Rose the perfect sorcerer's apprentice. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natosa. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Casey Georgie, Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Karen Bevan, and by Nick Mavarekis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi and Kai Angle. Recorded by Adam Garner at Listen Up Studios in Atlanta. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beal and Janelle Patel. And for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the survivors, friends, and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, please reach out for help. You can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE or 1-800-656-4673. You can also visit their website at rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, please leave us a review. Thank you. Next time on What Makes a Killer. On September 14, 2015, 25-year-old Jack Taylor's body had been discovered propped up against the wall of the graveyard of St. Margaret's Church in East London. Police found drug paraphernalia, including a small bottle containing the party drug GHB. He had died from an overdose. However, Jack's family was suspicious. Jack was very anti-drugs, so that didn't make sense. You just get this gut feeling that something's not right. And their suspicions were right. An active serial killer was at work, luring men to their deaths using online dating sites. And he went to great lengths to cover up his crimes. Young men in their 20s had been murdered in East London, and their bodies had been found in unexplained circumstances, all within a few hundred yards of each other. 